You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. My name is Rick Kleffel, and welcome to the Worldcon Report podcast. I've been in Anaheim for five days now to attend the World Science Fiction Convention. With this report, we'll try to give you a feeling for what you might hear were you to be here. Let's start with a panel, one of the best reasons to attend a science fiction convention. This is a format that is, in my experience, unique to science fiction conventions. Science fiction panels take place in conference rooms that allow audiences ranging in size from 30 to 200 attendees. On a small dais in the front of the room, you'll see three to five authors, critics, fans, or experts conversing on a given subject described in the program. For our first panel, my wife and I attended Future Trends in Science Fiction, featuring James Patrick Kelly, who was the moderator, Jean-Henri Holmberg, Mark von Schlegel, Gary K. Wolf, and Lou Anders. The panel description was, Not very long ago, we were awash in splatterpunks, cyberpunks, and even steampunks. What happened to those SF literary movements? What's the next trend? Let's listen as Gary Wolf from Locus Magazine starts off with a good description of the problem with the basic premise of the panel. That's right, many panels actually begin with the participants undermining the basic premise of the panel. When we talk about these various movements and trends, first of all, they never really go away. Mm-hmm. And secondly, we're talking about a lot of different animals. We have this, for example, or this description you read. Uh, consists of only movements that end with the syllable punk. <laughs> and it seems to me that, that punk movements, or blank punk movements, right. are, are movements involving attitude. Whereas hard science fiction is a movement, if you want to call it that, involving methodology. And space opera is a movement involving a form. So we're talking about a lot of different things, right. many of which can be combined, many of which can uh, converge into some, some new movement. The second thing, that's interesting about, uh, uh, about this sort of recombination, recombined science fiction, which is essentially what I think has been going on for the last 20 years, is that uh, a number of writers, yourself included, have, have struggled to get out of various pigeonholes. And as much as I admire uh, the slipstream anthology, when we come up with new terms like slipstream and interstitial and so forth and so on, um, it seems like we're allowing people to escape from their existing pigeonholes by creating new pigeonholes in order right. to put them in order to prove that they're no longer in the old pigeonholes. But the old pigeonholes are, are still there. This is like one of those old mailbox things in hotel rooms where slot after slot after slot gets filled. Some of them may be empty in a given year. Right. Some of them may be uh, being packed with, uh, with what's on this year, but, but, but all the mail slots are still there. James Patrick Kelly, the moderator, describes the cyberpunk trend from the outside and wonders if those who helped create it were correct in their understanding of cyberpunk as a trend. Let me talk a little bit about a movement that, that I sort of observed from the outside, and which was cyberpunk. And I think that was a movement of people, or trend anyway, of people who, well, it was a movement that wanted to create a trend. And so a bunch of people not the least of which was Bill Gibson and Bruce Sterling and to some extent Lou Shiner and Rudy Rucker, Pat Cat. well, I won't say Pat Cadigan's name because I don't think she was part of that cabal, but they decided they were going to you know, write a certain way and have certain interests and themes in their work. And 
as soon as they started doing this, they started propagandizing for their kind of writing and saying, oh, well, our, our writing is cutting edge and everyone else is mm -hmm. sort of like, it's like warming over the new wave and they're too young, they're, the new wave has crashed on the beach a long time ago and besides all the new wave people have already disowned it and so, uh, so these, this, this group of writers who they identified as John Kessel and Connie Willis and Stan Robinson and, and Karen Fowler and maybe they said me and Michael Swan. Well, they're just doing that stuff and over there and they're like rehashing what was done in the 60s and so we are at the cutting edge. Um, was that wrong? Kelly's question cuts to the heart of how we perceive trends. Those within self-described movements may have a very different perception than those who are outside the movements. Moreover, the readers may not give a hoot about whether or not a writer is working within a trend. They may just want a good story. And meanwhile, over in Europe, a trend may be utterly meaningless, according to Jean-Henri Olmberg. There is not all that much science fiction written in most European countries. Uh, some, like Germany, has, has a fairly viable uh, set of writers of their own. Most, like Sweden, Norway, Denmark, smaller countries, have maybe two or three people who will write, actually professionally write science fiction. Uh, and these tend, in the different countries, to write within the literary traditions either of that country or within the American science fiction idiom. Um, because American science fiction is what defines science fiction all over the world. That's what's basically translated and what science fiction authors identifying themselves as such um, start from when they begin writing in their own languages. There you have it from the continent, where American science fiction in all its forms defines the trend. James Patrick Kelly, who recently edited an anthology of slipstream fiction, often associated with and described as a form of fantasy, spoke to that trend and the touchstone that many within it regard as an ideal early realization of that trend, Franz Kafka. Once again, we see that those within a trend may perceive the fiction associated with it very differently than those who are outside the trend, even the audience. The godfather of slipstream is Franz Kafka. And if you hand a Kafka novel to some fantasy reader, I'd be willing to bet that half of them would run screaming out of the room because there's nothing of what they want there. There's no, no fantasy nutrition in a Kafka novel. But, but for us, for Kessel and I, we think that Kafka is actually pointing the way towards some of the, the ideas that, that, that Slipstream folks are playing with. While Kelly is certainly correct insofar as he edited Feeling Very Strange from Tachyon Books, an outstanding anthology to be sure, it's no surprise that the average fantasy fan would run screaming from Kafka. By definition, the average fantasy fan is looking for average fantasy, not the cutting-edge experiments that drive slipstream fiction. The audience here was left with a set of contradictory ideas to ponder. From within, those writers who associate themselves with the slipstream trend will continue to differentiate themselves from other forms of speculative fiction. From without, readers who grow more accustomed to the tropes employed by slipstream writers will cease to differentiate between a cutting-edge trend and the books they buy on the grocery store racks. Next, let's take a gander at these three people in the hotel courtyard who appear to be, is it knitting, at a science fiction convention? I'm Rick Kleffel for the Agony Column here at the World Science Fiction Convention in Los Angeles in 2006, and we're speaking with... Do you want my real name or do you want my persona? Now that's not the answer that you expect when you ask somebody their name. Let's check that again. I'm Rick Kleffel for the Agony Column here at the World Science Fiction Convention in Los Angeles in 2006, and we're speaking with... Do you want my real name or do you want my persona? Both. 
I am Ahirna Shanmil Pare Gotherman Kiruk, which in your language is Lord Sean Michael Patrick of Sheephaven. And mundanely, my name is Calvin Tucker. Nice to meet you, Calvin. And you are? In the society, I'm known as Baroness Angelina Nicolette de Beaumont. Um, in the real world, I'm known as Karen Allen. And you are? Morvith of Llanbidorn. And in the real world, I am Lynn Brown Tucker. Calvin is a member of the Society for Creative Anachronism, the famous SCA. Let's hear what he and his companions are doing at Worldcon. Um, we're here today as part of the children's program, demonstrating for the children that are present at the convention the fighting. It's a re reproduction of 14th century armored combat, tournament combat, and of 15th and 16th century rapier combat. Um, Shandar is a very, very famous weaver and is working on a brocaded ankle strap right now. Um, and his lady wife is spinning. Um, I'm working on uh, embroidery, specifically a piece of black work. Sean, tell us a little bit about what you're doing here. This is ankle weaving. I'm working on a loom that is specialized for band weaving. Inkle is a Middle English word that originally meant a woven linen band and then became generic for any woven band. Uh, there are spe specific techniques that you use for band weaving which allow for certain kinds of patterning, things that you couldn't do normally on a standard loom because the warp threads are compressed very close together and it allows you to do certain things you wouldn't normally be able to do. It is the conceptual opposite of brocading or tapestry. And so I'm doing basically trim. And you are? Morvith of Llanbidorn. And in the real world, I am Lynn Brown Tucker. And tell us a little bit about what you're doing here. I am taking wool that has been carded and cleaned, and I am turning it into yarn. And then I will either weave with it or knit with it or bribe somebody to do something that I don't want to do <laughs> with it. <laughs> One of the most charming aspects of the convention is the manner in which the participants take care of their own, and these members of the SCA are excellent examples. But not everyone is so outwardly focused. Here's what can happen to you if you take a spin through the dealer's room and find yourself face to face with one of the producers of the hit movie, Something About Mary. We're speaking with Frank Bedor. His new novel is The Looking Glass War. He's going to give us the one minute version of the book. Okay, Frank, go. Princess Alice Hart, she's celebrating her seventh birthday when suddenly there's a violent coup led by her evil Aunt Red. Her bodyguard, Hatter Madigan, whisks her away to safety through the pool of tears. Now the legend is it's a portal from Wonderland to our world. Unfortunately, no one's ever come back before. This little girl shoots out of a puddle and she ends up in England and she becomes the muse for the famous writer Lewis Carroll, who's so taken with her story he wants to write a book, but he gets it all wrong. I discover the truth. Out of another puddle shoots Hatter Madigan, he ends up in Paris separated from his charge and he goes on a mad search for 13 years and he finds her moments people I'm talking moments before she's gonna make the biggest mistake of her life she's gonna marry Queen Victoria's four son Leopold had her rescues her brings her back to Wonderland to fight for her rightful place as the true queen of the queendom of Wonderland <laughs> that was Frank Redder his new book is the looking glass wars it's coming out I think at this instant September 26 September 26 everywhere, everywhere. and he's with a soundtrack and he's got a boatload of posters here. Tell us how you got these posters and books made. 
Well, I have uh, giveaway posters because I spun off the Hatter character into a comic book series called Hatteram, The Looking Glass Wars. Issue 1 and 2 uh, have come out. Issue 3 is coming out September 20th, a week before my, uh, before my novel. So I decided to uh, give some swag away to the fans. And tell us, uh, who does the art for the uh, comic books? Uh, ben Templesmith, who's famous for his um, work with 30 Days of Night. And uh, he, wor he also did Fell that Warren Ellis wrote. And who's the publisher of the comic books? Uh, Image is the publisher, and uh, Penguin publishes my novel. And who publishes it in England? Oh, the British publisher is Egmont. It's very nice. We've been speaking with Frank Bedor. His new novel is The Looking Glass War. Thank you very much, Frank. Thanks so much, Rick. See you later. Or you can ask your favorite author what's up with his next novel, and he'll be standing right there to tell you. We're speaking with Al Reynolds here at the World Science Fiction Convention. Al, what brings you to Los Angeles? Well, I get over here about every four or five years. I mean, we'd, we'd love to come more often, but, uh, you know, this is okay. We've got friends in, uh, in the L.A. area we like to see, and the fact that there was a World Science Fiction Convention in Anaheim was just... You know, couldn't be couldn't be missed. We had to come here. Tell me a little bit about your forthcoming novel. Well, I I can't exactly say what it's going to be called yet. Uh, the working title is The Prefect, and it's um, it's a novel set in the universe of my first four books, the Revelation Space Universe. But it's kind of a police procedural. Uh, when I was pitching it to my editor to start with, I was saying it's like twenty four in space. It's a kind of high tech, uh, fast moving. A crisis scenario, um, but now now that I've sort of nearly finished it, I'm saying it's like the 80th, 87th precinct in space. If the 87th precinct had access to tactical nuclear weapons, well, well that sounds delightful. And when can we expect this novel to come out? Uh, if all goes well, it'll be out in April in the UK. We've been speaking with Al Reynolds. His forthcoming novel may be called The Prefect. Thanks for speaking with us, Al. Thanks very much. Next. You might be fortunate enough to wander over to the Killer Bees in a V panel, featuring David Brin, Werner Vinge, Greg Baer, and Dr. Greg Benford. Here's the description. Baer, Benford, Brin, and Werner Vinge talk about the bullets that you don't hear, which ones will get us, and why worry. And here's David Brin, feeling nostalgia for a future that never came to pass, and Greg Baer's concise response. I know you're sick of the 21st century, it's been the pits compared to what we thought it would be. Where are all the anti-gravity belts and the whirling space stations with Strauss waltzes and all that kind of stuff? That is so retro. The dominant feature of this panel was humor and plenty of it. These four fellows kept the audience in stitches even as they made us all very uncomfortable thinking about the potential bear traps that await us. Benford got things rolling. This panel was ostensibly about the bullet you don't see, or actually you never see it, you could hear it perhaps, but we're supposed to discuss threats that no one has thought of until this moment. Interestingly enough, one of the ground rules for this set of thought experiments was that none of the participants wanted to talk about the kind of thing that a disaffected high school student could pull off with little training or equipment. Nobody wanted to put forth an idea that could be easily translated into an action that might take hundreds of lives. Werner Vinge, ever the optimist, questioned that stricture. It, it takes towering arrogance to believe that if you think of a threat that there are all sorts of other people who would think of that threat, including people of ill will. And so talking about it would seem to raise the possibility that uh, the, the threat could be met. On the other hand, if you ever came up with a threat that anybody could do, 
at any time, and it could cause untold suffering, there's a question about whether that's a threat you would want to talk about. David Brin gets to the heart of what many consider the prime reason for the existence of dystopian fiction. He also manages to plug one of his novels, his own prowess at prediction, and make fun of himself in the process. There's a wiki online right now tracking 24 successful predictions of my novel Earth. But none of us have... Name two. <laughs> Name two? Yeah. Oh, um, uh, uh, life arcs for uh, endangered species, um, subvocal uh, communication systems, uh, the web. <laughs> Jack, Jack Williamson had them all. The point is that uh, the self-preventing prophecy, you don't get this kind of arguing crap. Wait, you prevented the web? <laughs> no, no, but, but that effort is underway now. Yeah. The, um, In some countries. The self-preventing prophecy, best example, would be 1984, which girded millions of people to try to prevent it from ever happening. Dr. Strangelove. Nonetheless, um, it did. On, well, there are scenarios in play. This is Greg Bear as he speaks to the theme of one of his novels, Vitals, in which he explores a premise that is prescient and horrific. David Brin provides the humorous counterpoint. I did that in Vitals. That still hasn't come That's up since. exactly so. what you did in Vitals. Yes. It's creepy, creepy novel, by the way. Yeah. You want to yeah, get creeped it, out? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. He's, he's got enough books on his shelf. It's perfectly doable. It's perfectly doable. What's in Vitals is that you can program the phage that infect the bacteria that live in your gut with genes which cause psychotropic chemicals to be released in your system to produce chemicals that will get into your bloodstream from your gut and amend your behavior. And in Russia, you know, it was predicted, that, uh, backward predicted that this has been happening since the 1930s. And finally... Bryn talks about the power of thought experiments and gives an idea as to how common they are. So the point is, every time you think by the water cooler, you know, what if my, I to say this to my boss? What if I try to gun it for this yellow light? You're doing thought experiments that are supposed to eliminate 99% of the really stupid things that you might do. If you're male, 93% of the really stupid things you might do. Yeah, that's Actually, that's not fair. It's 99.9 in our case because we think up vastly more stupid things than you can imagine. And that's just a smattering of what you can find here. There are costumes, yes, and lots of great movie props. But Worldcon is an event where attendees can hear intelligent men and women discussing fascinating and important topics in a manner that is both entertaining and thought-provoking. Or they can plunge down the rabbit hole and talk to an author about his latest novel. Or they can join the knitting team on the Hotel Plaza. Costumes, yes, but Worldcon is a marketplace of unfamiliar ideas laced with intelligent humor. You can leave the Spock ears behind, but it's a good idea to plan on buying a book. Make that a lot of books. For the Agony Column, I'm Rick Kleffel.